every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. Today's episode features an interview with Julie Legal, CMO of Slack. Julie has more than 18 years of technology industry experience, and prior to Slack, she spent 13 years at Salesforce, most recently as the Executive Vice President of Global Marketing, where she and her teams were responsible for the success of Dreamforce, driving demand gen, and the market positioning of Salesforce's cloud products. On this episode, Julie talks about demand gen at Slack, how she created a demand gen team from scratch and generated unprecedented growth, how she creates world-class events and digital events, and much more. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Julie Legal and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, host of Demand Gen Visionaries and CEO of Caspian Studios. And today we are joined by the special guest. Julie, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing today? I'm doing awesome. I'm super excited to talk Demand Gen with you. So let's get started. What was your first job in Demand Gen? Well, my first job out of college was actually working at an enterprise software company called Trilogy in Austin, Texas. It recruited a whole bunch of kids straight out of college, mainly computer science majors, but a few liberal arts majors sprinkled in to do the marketing side of the business. And when I was hired, I was an English major in college, and they basically brought me into the business and they said, you were an English major, go figure out if we should be doing direct mail. So I was sort of thrown right into it. I have no idea why that still set felt like it would apply, but I guess the fact that I could write meant I could do direct mail pieces. So I sort of taught myself how to do direct mail, how to do offers, how to do direct response, how to do testing, lists, all that stuff right out of the gate. And that sort of started, I guess, my lifelong interest and obsession with building demand and running campaigns to move people along that funnel. So flash forward to today, tell us about what it means to be CMO of Slack. Slack is just such an interesting company at such an interesting time. You know, everyone knows Slack or a lot of people know Slack for the the rocket ship-like growth that we had in the early days. And that's still happening. But what's shifting is the way people are working is changing, accelerated by, of course, the events that we've had going on in the last few months globally. But also people are seeing that there's a better way to work than email and the way they've worked before. So the exciting opportunity we have or that I have leading marketing at Slack is really introducing Slack to that next wave of people who are looking for a better way to work and who are looking to transition away from something more, something like email and into something more organized, faster, more secure. So it's just a really exciting time to really get Slack out to the world. I think sometimes people in the Valley think everybody already knows what Slack is, but really we've just started to scratch the surface of the hundreds of millions of people who could be working better today in Slack. It's so amazing to me that 
at how really early Slack's journey is. Like, I feel like I've been a customer forever for so long. There's so much of the like Slack subculture and you have the like hidden channels and all the emojis and all the changing photos and like all of kind of the part that makes it so unique to every organization and like what those different things look like. It's the funny thing to think of how many people get to experience that for the first time or go through onboarding for the first time that are out there. I mean, I joined Slack as somebody who had never used Slack before, which I think was both a blessing and a curse. It definitely made the adjustment to a job all that more challenging, but it also allowed me to understand why Slack was so much better than what I had before. And when I talk to people who don't use Slack and I explain what it's like to be somebody who comes into a company who can get caught up on all the important projects right away instead of having to wait for a bunch of emails forward to them or somebody to sit and explain things, or I can quickly find the answers to questions. It really has changed the way that I work and getting to experience that for the first time was great. And I'm excited to unlock that for the rest of the world that hasn't experienced it yet. Let's get into our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree So this is where you can feel honest and trusted and share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. First off, what would you say your demand gen strategy is? Ooh, that's a great question. Well, I guess I think, again, as somebody who started off my world in direct mail, which, you know, we just thought of that time as a one-off tactic. I think the keys to demand gen are, first of all, that it all has to be integrated. You have to think of a program rather than a set of tactics and how they're going to go along the way. And I think the other thing that's key is the phrase demand gen, because, you know, back in the day, old lady legal here, you know, we used to call it lead gen. And that very much reflected what it was, which was marketing, throwing leads over the wall and probably a few weeks later yelling at sales, they hadn't followed up on them and sales yelling at marketing that the leads were no good. So demand gen is really about being smarter about the entire funnel. And that's really what my philosophy in demand gen and definitely is the philosophy at Slack, which is even more interesting because we have a self-serve motion and a direct selling motion. So really understanding what does that full funnel look like? What is the customer experience like? Where does marketing have the biggest role to play? And then how do you make a program that's integrated and consistent through that funnel? That's really how I think about it. And you know, with Slack, we also have the benefit of people get to use the product along the way. And so part of our demand gen is get into the product and experience it. And then we can work together on how to bring it to more of your organization. How do you structure your marketing team and where does demand gen fit into that? I have a demand gen pillar within my marketing team that reports directly to me. So when I came in, one of the challenges that I did have was marketing had been split up into a few different groups while they waited to hire a marketing leader. And there wasn't really the concept of a demand gen function. There was a web team, there was a paid digital team, there was a content team, there was an email team, but they were operating more or less independently and there wasn't really anybody threading the things together. So I created a demand gen function and and that function now owns the channels, the email, the website, the paid digital, but they also have integrated marketers, campaigns, people who are thinking about how are we reaching our top audiences in that integrated, consistent way across the different parts of the journey and using the different channels to do that. I also have an international team that has demand gen capabilities within it, and they partner with that headquarters demand gen team, both to use the channels, to share best practices, and to roll out campaigns globally. can go either direction. They can start internationally and come to the U.S. or vice versa. Sometimes they hit globally all at once. 
I also have brand and creative. I have PR and comms. I have a product marketing team, which obviously also works very, very closely with the demand gen team, working on the content and the personas and the audiences and really getting the materials that fuel all of that. Who have I forgotten? But that's basically my marketing team. And I'm sure I've forgotten somebody who will uh, be very sad afterwards. But that's a marketing team. Oh, marketing operations also obviously key to all of this. The systems, the tools, the processes to be able to measure everything that we're doing. You talked personas, obviously Slack sells to everybody who's trying to reimagine how they're doing work. But I'd love to dive into some of those personas. And based off of demand gen, I'd imagine that your demand gen team is focused a lot on those enterprise type accounts, those, you know, as we like to say, the diamond accounts that have tons and tons of employees that need a better place to communicate at work. So can you talk us through some of those personas? It is interesting. It's the blessing and the curse of being a product that anybody can use or anybody who does their primary work on a laptop can use Slack. It's a marketer's dream because it's a huge market market and it's a marketer's nightmare because it's very hard to target everybody with a computer. So we've really been focusing in on what are our top personas, both the ones that we've been the most successful in and also the ones that we think are the next great untapped ones to go after. So traditionally, IT developers, those are the teams that adopt Slack first. They're early adopters. They're the ones who've gotten passionate about it. They've built great custom integrations, workflows. They have it integrated to all of their projects, programs, processes. These are the people who can't live without Slack. And our best customers still, the way that they've started is a team started using Slack for a project or you know, because they've used it at a prior employer and they want to bring it there. And they start using it within their team, maybe even the free version of our product. Maybe they upgrade and start using the credit card version. And then it starts to spread. So since we know that's where we tend to land with a lot of new companies, one of the key focus areas we had was really formalizing it and building out content and programs for developers and IT. But we also know, I mean, I'm a marketer, I'm addicted to Slack, my sales team all loves Slack, customer support, there's so many great use cases. So then it becomes a matter of prioritizing and which are the next personas that we think have the most potential, the most existing customers where we've got great use cases that we can share out and that we know we can market to effectively. So those key lines of business are the ones that we've gone after next. Again, the reality is Slack works for everybody. So we also have to have our general messaging that works as well. But we've really been prioritizing and what's our best way to get in? And then what are the next departments that are most likely to see benefit and use? And of course, we also have tons of partners and all of those functions that also help us. You know, we integrate to Salesforce and Zendesk and Nedlas and Asana and basically any sort of product that these companies are using, we have great integrations with. So it helps us with those lines of business to build out those, those use cases. Yeah, and I wanted to talk about partners because it is so interesting. Obviously, you spent a ton of time at Salesforce working there. Salesforce has the Slack integration. Obviously, you have like best of breed tools and we're working with Slack, Zoom, Box, and Okta on a separate podcast called CIO Confidential where we're working with all four of your organizations to figure out really cool things to do. You have like, you know, people call like the gas stack where it's like Google, Asana, Slack. Slack seems like it's part of all of these different types of stack and tools to integrate into the way that people are doing things. Like, how do you view those type of partnerships? Is that within demand gen? Is it tangential? How do you look at that? It's definitely not tangential. I mean, partners are key to what we do because the way you use Slack, 
the more integrations you have, the more value you get of it. And the way I think about it is all these applications are hugely valuable, but because you can integrate them to Slack, you can get more visibility, more interactions, more usage out of them. I may not want to go into Salesforce to look up an account, but I can quickly get the info on, is this company a customer or not with just a slash command in Slack? You know, our sales team is logging in and using Salesforce every day. I can just use the slash command. I'm not a sales user and get the information that I need quickly and move on to the next thing. And that's sort of the way Slack works with all these amazing partner integrations. We are huge believers in integrating with all, Zoom, Box, Opta, all of these things add more value to Slack. And they're also tools that people are already using and loving, which is great for us. We have a partner marketing function within our product marketing function, and we do a ton with partners. We're lucky because we work with pretty much everybody. So it just becomes a matter of how do we prioritize and invest our time, but we are very proud of the open ecosystem that we're part of. So as you're looking at structuring demand gen to acquire certain types of accounts like named accounts or ABM or things, however, you know, your team is looking at that. Are you cross-cutting that by industry, by segment, by persona? How do you look at those? We're still early in our marketing journey in many ways. Slack has had a sales team for about three, four years, and we're really getting serious about enterprise marketing in the last year and a half, sort of right around when I joined. So we're kind of in the baby steps phase. We're definitely partnering with sales on named accounts and on segments. And personas, lines of business has been what we prioritize next. Industries are very interesting. We have some great customer stories, some great use cases in sort of the top industries, but we aren't doing that as a specific demand gen motion yet, just small little pilot things. But I imagine that's an area we'll shift to probably next fiscal year because our sales organization is definitely moving that way. They brought in the ringer here. That's why, you know, we got to look at, at enterprise. That's why, you know, <laughs> that's, it's got to be part of the reason. Plus all of your events experience, we can get into that now, but with all of your work that you did at Dreamforce and things like that, I mean, I'd imagine that the demand gen side of your brain is just firing with ideas of different things that you can do. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, something that we did, I think, so well at Salesforce and is something I'm definitely trying to bring to Slack, although current world circumstances have put a little bit of a wrench in the plan, is events are just one more demand gen tool. And, you know, they're both is demand gen around events in terms of getting the right people there and driving them to the right experiences and the way that you follow up with them afterwards using their, their event experience and the information you were able to get from them at the event to get them better follow up. But it's also one step in a larger demand gen campaign. You know, you should be viewing the people that you're trying to reach. How does the event play a role in the journey you're trying to have with them? And also, how does that event become an engine to build the content for your next set of demand gen? So I see events as an amplifying effect to demand gen, as a point in the demand gen journey, and also as a source for demand gen content. So I am definitely, we are definitely doing more of that with Slack. We are about to roll out a roadshow program, which is something that I've done for many years at Salesforce. Uh, it ended up going virtual, but we, despite that, um, and it was a very last minute pivot, we were able to exceed all of our goals for it. And we are doing our user conference in a um, virtual way coming up the second week of October, which is very exciting to me. It's very strange to be in a world with no in-person events. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it's so bizarre. I, and the, the stuff that folks are doing is really cool and innovative. And I wonder, I really wonder what the next evolution of that becomes. Uh, what do you, what do you think is, is the next, next phase for all of this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very funny how everyone, and I, I talked to so many events people in the industry too, and, and we're all trying to figure it out. I mean, I think what was clear was phase one of events was kind of like phase one of work when this all happened, which was 
do what you were doing at, but do it online in exactly the same way. So if you were going to have somebody speaking to a group of people on a stage, put them on a Zoom on 24, all the great tools that we have, and basically replicate the webinar experience. And I think, you know, that obviously is effective for getting your content out there, but does it engage the people you're trying to engage in the same way? Of course not. Does it allow for the relationship building? No. The peer-to-peer networking, all the things that really make events super effective, the opportunity for that person to get a question answered that both advances their understanding of your product and how they could work with it and also gives you insight into what they need. All that sort of gets lost when you just do the replace in-person conferencing with video conferencing. So I do think the next wave, and we're looking at tools to do this, I know everyone is, and we're, you know people are cobbling solutions together or exploring companies that are trying to pilot this, is how do you create those one-on-one interactions? How do you create opportunities to ask questions? How do you create networking? How do you create executive engagement? And we're all trying different things, but I think the people that crack that first are going to have a real advantage. And, you know, the joke is it's easier to get people to your events now because they don't have to travel. They don't have to leave the office. They can just click a button, but it sure is easier to get people to click on your event and not engage. So how do you really drive that deep, meaningful engagement? Yeah, one, it's easier to get folks to your events, but it's harder to get people to remember them. And that's what I think is so unique about something like Dreamforce. And for our listeners who've never been, highly recommend you go when we when we can. Um, but but like, you know, I remember seeing Bruno Mars. I remember the restaurant that I ate at for a certain, you know, private event or private party that we were talking with X, Y, and Z. I remember like you, there's all these memories that come with those things. Like I remember, you know, like closing a deal at Dreamforce. I remember finding new things for our company, like going with our leadership team there and having that kind of like three days, you're fried, your hair looks crazy, you know, all of your clothes probably are sweaty or something like that. But like, those are the sort of things that I think like that event that no digital experience is ever going to be able to replace those things. And it's just harder to remember, you know, and that that's what we want to build as marketers. Yeah, totally. And I'm sure you don't remember what the Salesforce keynote was about that year, but you remember how you felt being there. And I'm sure it affected the way that you felt about hopefully not just Dreamforce, but Salesforce as a company, your relationship to it. And that is true. Like we can maybe create the experiences for better networking and better executive engagement, but we can't replace that feeling of inspiration and serendipity nearly as easily. And that is definitely something that is missing from the virtual. And if anybody has figured out a way to do that, I will be very, very impressed, which is why I'm hopeful that in-person events will return. If anything, I think people will be thirsting for it. They may look different and it may take longer than I think things are officially postponed out till next summer now. I don't know when things will really come back in person, but I think there will be a thirst for that connection and that feeling again. I love that you said inspiration and serendipity because that is exactly, it nails it for events, right? It's like all the things that you plan for and you plan for everything. And it's like people get so much value out of the things that you don't plan for. And that's the great thing about actually building experiences, right? Rather than just saying, hey, we can plan every aspect of it. Exactly. Exactly. We used to always say, as we would sort of prep our attendees for Dreamforce and we would give them tips, we would say, don't overschedule. And that wasn't just because people get burned out, but you know, we did want them to have that experience of discovering something unexpected, meeting somebody new. That is sort of the delight of it. You can sit online and learn everything via online modules and interaction. There's really no shortage of things you can do online, but that in-person experience, you really have to make the space for that those moments, those unexpected moments, the inspiration and the fun. Let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. 
This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. That's where you open up the playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. Can you give me three tactics or channels or whatever that are your most uncuttable budget items? Oh, no, I'm worried my team is going to turn in and use this against me when I try to cut their budgets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if you're listening, you can't cut the budgets because of this Absolutely. <laughs> well, this one may sound counterintuitive for a podcast that's all about demand gen, but I am happy to be at a company that invests seriously in brands and advertising at the brand level. You know, it's something that a lot of B2B companies don't invest in. And there's a lot of ways to use, you know, traditional demand gen, direct response, all of that stuff to fill your funnel. But I do think, especially for a company like Slack, which is building a new category, really breaking out of just the bubble of our super fans and going out to the world, building that awareness and affinity at the highest level is very important. So my brand budget is very sacred. It's also the kind of thing that brand is pretty binary. Like you invest in it or you don't. Like cutting it, you know, 30%, 50%, like there's diminishing returns or sort of a threshold you have to invest in. We're very serious about doing that in a very targeted way. It all aligns up to our sales targets. And, you know, we're focusing on cities and areas where we really want to have the most expansion, but that brand budget is definitely sacred. I think another thing I would put out there, and and this is less a budget and more of a resource thing is content, because I think in order to fuel all the great demand, and it does come down to the content that you have, the stories you can tell, the assets you can give to customers to help see their understanding build their love and need for your product and make them successful when they've started using it. So they'll want to deepen their usage and and evangelize for you more. So I'd say that content budget or that content function is really critical. And then finally, you know, looking across the whole demand gen budget, I mean, I would say the demand gen budget in general, but I think what's great is the areas where we're really able to target. So I would say things like SEM are so obvious and obviously we invest in it. But, you know, what I'm really interested in, the ways to reach the new people. So what's the content syndication that we haven't used yet? What are, you know, the ABM tools that we haven't used yet? So I would say maybe it's the innovation pocket of my demand gen budget is the one that I would invest the most heavily in. Always got to have that SEM. We got to keep up with, with the Joneses and all that stuff. But it's the, the innovative things that we can do on um, demand gen that I think would be the, the third Yeah, that's really fascinating. It's almost like you're kind of saying like at the very top of the funnel and at the very bottom of the funnel, right? Because the things that people are searching or the types of content that are like hyper niche and interesting to the like a subset of a population. But then on the other end, you want to have that large scale like brand affinity that people can talk about and and remark about and that everybody knows what your company stands for. Yeah, I think of it as an amplification for everything you're doing. And it's not even just demand gen. I mean, it helps with sales. I mean, I always joke like no one's happier when ads are marketed than a sales team because their customers see it. They comment on it. They, you know, everyone sort of feels more confident. Like this is a great thing. This is a cool product, a big company, something I want to work with. And it helps with recruiting. Like it amplifies everything that you do and it absolutely pours fuel on the rest of your marketing. So how do you measure or like craft that, brand success engine? Brand is funny because there definitely are ways to measure it. We do a lot of brand studies. We do research on consideration, awareness, sentiment, and we try to measure it quarterly. We measure it amongst you know, deeper and deeper cuts of our target audiences. And we compare the geos that we're in versus the geos that we're not in. 
But I do think that science only takes you to a point. I mean, absolutely is great to have that, but you're never going to be able to, or I don't believe you're ever going to get that to a dollar of ad spend equals X and ROI. To me, it's, is it directionally working? Is it directionally moving things? I think brand is also a bit of an art. You know, it's the feeling, it's the buzz that you get. It's the way that the messages resonate and the other things that you're doing that you can measure more directly. So I think there has to be sort of an art emotional component too. How good does the marketing team, the executive team that's signing off on it feel about the work that's out there, but also having the numbers to back it up shows that you're moving in the right direction, that you're targeting effectively. And that's super important too. Yeah. You know, I really like the expression that like customer experience is the new brand or it's maybe it's always been the brand, right? And your brand budget is about reminding people of that experience, right? It's like, you know, if you're drinking a Coke, you know how drinking a cold Coke on a hot day feels. And so to be reminded of that is like, yeah, I want that feeling again. And I think for, you know, for Slack, at least for me, it's always been like, again, I can remember all the fun, like the most fun channels that I've been a part of. I can remember like getting, um, sharing company-wide announcements, doing those sort of things. Like there's so many things that you do in Slack that are fun and funny and human and exciting. And like when I see Slack, that's what I'm associated with is like all of those things. And it just seems like it's such a great opportunity to remind people like, you know, why they're using the product, what they feel when they're using a product. And it kind of brings it all full circle, at least to me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's funny, if you think about it, what you're describing, I think is so true, which is, it's almost like brand is a full funnel experience too. And, you know, I think we used to think of that as like brand, it's to get people to know about your product and buy it or start using it, which, you know, absolutely still an objective of it, but it is really about that full funnel experience with brand as well. It's even getting the people who are already using the product and already love the product. It's a reminder. It's a spark. It's a connection. And I think that's right on. I, by the way, remember when somebody at Slack made my dog into an emoji and that was my first real, I went from like, I'm figuring out how to use this to, oh, wow, this is really cool. And it's, it sort of started from there. Oh yeah. The hashtag dogs and hashtag cheese channel, always the most popular, just uh, share <laughs> recommendations for cheese and then sharing just photos of people's dogs. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, not to go off topic, since we've been sitting at home, I actually make it a point to drop into at least one of my social channels a couple times a week, because what I don't do anymore is wander into the kitchen and happen to strike up a conversation with somebody while I'm grabbing a snack. Um, well, if I do, it's with somebody who lives in my home. So going into those channels, they've kind of been a lifeline during this work from home world of, yes, I'm getting my work done, but I can also pop into the Black Peloton users group and uh, check out what ride everybody's doing. It's been kind of fun. That is super fun. I think that one of the great things about the product of Slack and probably why it's fun to market it is that there are so many little stories and use cases that are so interesting to talk about. And it's like, you would never put it in the first four slides of the slide deck that like, oh, you can have a Peloton users channel that you can, everyone who, at your company who rides Pelotons. Like you know, that's not in the sales deck. Maybe it is, I don't know. I, I need to go back and look. I don't, I'm not sure that it is. <laughs> but, but it's like, those are the things that make it feel so real and you get like the personalities. Like again, if you want to compare that to email, what are you going to do? Start an email thread with people at your company about like 
what they're doing for Peloton. You'd never do that, right? So it's like that those experiences, especially for a remote team, are just lost in the ether, right? People just don't talk about them if you're remote. Like you would never bring it up. And with Slack, it's like you can have those conversations. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying is sort of the essence of one of the reasons I was, again, so excited about Slack when I think about the opportunity. This is enterprise software. Like, you know, we have companies where hundreds of thousands of people, you know, Oracle, IBM, Verizon are using Slack, but they love Slack in a way that people don't love, you know, other enterprise software that's hard to use. This is something where employee engagement sort of is naturally part of the experience. And then it fuels the productivity and the collaboration and all the things that you're trying to drive because people love using the product. Do you have a favorite campaign or one of your favorite campaigns? And it can be either a Slack or Salesforce or, or whatever in your career. Oh my goodness. Well, at Slack, I feel like we're still so new to the game. I am really proud though of the work that we did around remote work, just partially because it was done with such a quick pivot and during such a crazy time. So, you know, we'd built all of our plans. Our fiscal year starts February 1st. We were getting stuff off the ground, cranking on Q1 when we all got sent home and the world changed, hopefully not forever, but in some ways, probably forever. And we did a very quick pivot to update everything to sort of why Slack for remote work. And we actually got a TV ad in market very, very quickly really called You Got This, that was all about working from home, working remotely and using Slack. And what was great about everything was, first of all, the the speed with which the team did it, the focus that we had during that time, I was really proud of. The results were, were great. But what I also really loved was a lot of our campaign, especially the online stuff, the offer that we were pushing, it wasn't just like you know, discounts and things like that. It was, if you need real help from a human, click here and sign up for a free one-on-one consultation. And we had so much response to that. We had people, not just our world-class CE organization, which we're kind of known for our, our high touch and really personalized customer support, but people across the company ended up volunteering because we had so much demand. And people sat on Zooms with customers and taught them how to use Slack or answered their questions about how to pivot to remote work. And it was so great because first of all, I think everybody had a sense of mission, a sense of purpose, but it also fueled all the campaign and demand gen work we were doing, both because it gave us a really human way to talk to people and give them a place to go. And then we were able to use the information we were getting. These are the questions we're hearing to kind of fuel that next set of assets, content that we're building for the campaign. These are the questions people are asking. Let's make sure we have stuff for them to answer. So super proud of all of that work and the way the team showed up. How about a campaign that's your, maybe your best learning experience or a campaign that went haywire? Oh my gosh. Wow. So many to choose from. Actually, you know, this is so back in the day, but I feel like this is one that I will never really forget. So at my first company, you know, when I became the queen of direct mail, they put me in charge of marketing what was then their fastest growing product, which was a sales compensation tool, which there are companies now that do that. Um, This is back in the I'm not going to give the decade. Anyway, um, so what we did was we, and this is still the time of direct mail because I'm old, we mailed out remote control cars to um, sales ops and IT people trying to get them interested in our product. And it was about like drive more sales using our product. It was phenomenally successful in terms of people were willing to like fill out the form, but nobody advanced beyond that. And so what I learned was like, you can give something something really high value and it may even make them willing to have that first conversation with you. But if it's not driving affinity or understanding of your product, you know, I, I sort of joke, like if you said, you know, click here and I'll give you a thousand dollars, you can probably get a lot of people to click, 
but are you going to get qualified people that are going to be interested in your product? They're going to understand it more. They're going to want to do business with your company. Well, maybe they will, if you think you're going to give them a thousand dollars, but in the long run, no. So I think the lesson I learned is, you know, make sure what you're offering ties to what you're doing and that it's not just the flashy thing to be the flashy thing. And I still think flashy things can work, but they need to work in a way that makes sense with your product beyond just a clever marketing tagline. You mentioned sales a few times. How do you develop a great relationship with sales? Oh, I hope my sales team thinks I have a great relationship with them. Um, No, I think first of all, as a marketer, if you don't see a huge part of your job as building a partnership with sales, investing time with them, getting feedback, doing an iterative planning process with them, then, then you're not doing marketing right, or at least marketing at the types of companies that I've worked at. If I build a marketing plan and sales isn't aligned to it, neither side is going to be successful. So I spend a lot of time and it's not just, here's the finished product. Are you okay with this? It's, you know, we're planning for the year. Let's talk about regions. Let's talk about personas versus industries. Let's talk about top priorities. And, you know, the sales team is always going to, or in my experience, always going to want more than you're going to be able to deliver um, because it's their job. They've got, you know, the hardest job. They have to go out there and that's where the rubber hits the road is getting the customer to sign, getting the customer onboarded. Um, So they're going to always ask for more stuff. And it's my job to prioritize, give them the work of the highest quality I can as fast as I can, but also be realistic about the trade-offs. So I also think honesty is a really big part of building that relationship. And you have to say no sometimes, or you have to say, I can do this, but there's going to be a trade-off and then talk about how that affects the strategy that you've aligned to. So you have to see it as a partnership. You have to be willing to co-plan, co-create, you have to iterate, I would say. It can't just be a great, we've kicked off Q1, I'll see you at the end and, and we'll tell each other how it went. It's got to be constant and you have to be fluid and adaptable and build in opportunities to shift things if, if you see things are, are going a different way. And you know, another thing I've been talking to my sales team about is that relationship can't just sit at the CMO, you know, whatever, CRO, head of sales level. You also have to make sure it's cascading down through the organization so that junior people in your organization and junior salespeople feel that connection to have that relationship. And, and that's definitely something that we're focusing on. How do you view your website as part of your demand gen process? I mean, the website's critical. It's tough though, because a website always plays so many roles. It's, you know, it's your brand. It's in our case, and in many cases, the front door to your product. It's absolutely a demand gen engine. It also is your investor relations site. It's where people go if they have questions about your security. It's where job seekers go. So I think of a website as having to serve many, many different objectives and you have to prioritize them. For Slack, the website, there's a website team and they sit in my demand gen org, but that doesn't mean that they are single-handedly focused on just that. They're aware of the balancing of priorities. It has to be consistent with what we're doing at a market and it has to have great CTAs and we need to be optimizing those and making sure that we're using the latest technology in terms of being able to target, being able to convert. So I really see it as a place for us to do that. What's great about websites too is just with the volume that you get or the volume that we get, it's such a great grounds for testing. So I also view it as a place where we can try out new ideas with subsets of our audience, run experiments and learn. So the answer is critical, but you have to balance it with the other things that it's doing. Let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh. Here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust-up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales team, your competitors, or just anyone else. Julie, do you have a famous dust-up in your background? 
Oh my goodness. A famous dust up. So a famous conflict. Yeah. Ooh. Oh goodness. I don't think one that's safe for podcast consumption. <laughs> Here's what I will say in my dream force days, to, you know, the joke that we had on the team is that we were the dream busters because as much as dream force is amazing and you know it's everything that salesforce has to offer it can't literally be everything that salesforce has to offer so while no one experience turns up it having to say no to so many people whether it's i want to put my product here i need this much time to speak on stage to some of the sillier requests like i need to be backstage at the bruno mars concert so I'm the queen of dust-ups from Dreamforce. I think it built up a very thick skin of being able to dust up, having to say no to so many so many people across the organization and across the ecosystem along the way. So are you the type of person now that when you go to a conference or speak at a conference, you're like, I have no rider, I have no nothing. You're like, I know how, how painful <laughs> it is to get all this stuff set up. So it's like, whatever. I am somebody... Yeah, I am so, I, you know, it's funny. I'm somebody who, when I'm at an event or even out in like a non-professional event, like a, a social event in the world, I say like, thank you to the security guards. Yep. I follow every rule. I'm like scanning around and noticing why they do things. And yes, and I'm, yeah, I definitely am. I, I appreciate the kind of job that is and how hard it is and how hard everybody is working. At the same time, I also have the critical eye. Oh, why'd they do the stage like that? And uh, why do they put the partners on this side of the room if they wanted to drive real engagement? So I definitely judge as well. Yeah, I, so I do too. I started a conference and it's the same sort of thing of like the person who's like running the show where you're like, you just walk by and you do the kind of like, hey, I know you don't have any time, but you're awesome. And then like go thank everybody and do all that stuff. It really is. It's a, it's a harrowing experience. Anyone who ever does do an event for the first time, you're like, it is. are you sure? Are you sure you want to do that? I know there's some ranking of like the most stressful professions that always gets sported around by definitely people on my old events team. And it was always like, you know, there's the people who diffuse bombs, you know, there's maybe people who work in mines. And then like number three was like event planner. And it maybe it was a tongue in cheek study. Maybe it wasn't, but there is a, a huge adrenaline and you know, I always joke, people would ask me at the Dreamforce at the end, how did it go? And I would always say, I'm the wrong person to ask because I know everything that went wrong. And, you know, people think it's an amazing event and it is, but it's like, I know that on the second day they ran out of vegan meals at one venue and two people were upset and that sits with me for the rest of the week, even if everything else went perfectly. So it's a very stressful job. Do you have any good, either embarrassing stories of Craig or Marketraz stories that are especially memorable? Oh, gosh. I'm worried that I'll get cut for time. So my favorite thing about Craig and Marketraz was just Craig inspired the Salesforce uniform, or at least the Salesforce product uniform, which was a very specific kind of check shirts, jeans, and the converse. And I remember one day being at work a little bit later, and I guess he had gone to the mailroom because next to his desk was like a stack in my memory as tall as I am. And I'm, I'm about five, six of identical Converse shoe boxes, which were the shoes that he had ordered. And I said, are these all exactly the same shoes? And he looked at me like I was crazy. Like, of course, these are all exactly the same shoes. So I think it was just sort of his uniform was one of the things that I always remember the most about him. I love it. All right, let's get into quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers, just like how quickly you could talk to someone that's on your website with Qualified.com. Qualified.com is a presenting sponsor of this show, and you can check them out at Qualified.com. Oh, nice. Your prospects are on your website. Go to Qualified.com to learn more. Quick 
hits. Julie, are you ready? I'm, I guess so. I guess I have to be. <laughs> Number one, do you have a show or a podcast or maybe a book that you're binging recently? Oh my goodness. I am such a binger and such a consumer. Actually, the sad thing is how my podcast consumption has gone down now that I'm not taking the bus to work. I'm actually re-watching for the third time now um, Watchmen, which was on HBO last year, which is one of my favorite things. So good. They even made it free for a while. I read the book many years ago. I didn't watch the movie adaptation they did a while back, but it is still one of the most stunning things I've ever seen. I'm at episode seven again and still kind of on the edge of my seat and noticing different things this time. It's crazy. It's so cool. And I knew the story of Black Wall Street and like that whole thing because we did it. I did a podcast episode a while back. And it's like the way they told that story wrapped with like Watchmen and everything. It's like just absolutely compelling. They said they're not going to bring back season two. And I feel like that's, they have to. It's so good. Well, Lindelof said he won't do it. In some ways, it's so perfect that the way they did it, it's almost like, where do you go next? But it's amazing if you know the Watchmen story. It's amazing if you don't know the Watchmen story. I didn't know the story of Greenwood. That was, I mean, I think one of the great things, it's, it's such a, a great piece of pop culture, the Watchmen, but it also, like, it brought attention to this, you know, truly shameful part of our history and educated so many people about it through this piece of entertainment. And it's, it's also just such a joy to watch. It's such, a, it's such a ride. So I'm watching it for the third time, believe it or not, locked in my house. <laughs> yeah, do you have any uh, hobbies or habits you picked up during quarantine? This sounds terrible because I feel like it's, it's the kind of thing that if I heard, I would roll my eyes, but I've actually become a runner. I've owned a Peloton treadmill for over a year. I was probably using it twice a week on a good week. And I'm now using it six or seven days a week. I'm running, I'm lifting weights. I might be in the best shape of my life because I finally, and it didn't start right away, but like a month and a half into this, I was like, if I'm not commuting anymore, I really have no excuse to not work out for like 20, 30 minutes a day. And it's, it's sort of changed and now I'm doing it all the time. So I'm a worker outer now. If you weren't a CMO or in marketing at all, what do you think you'd be doing? Uh, I think I'd probably be doing something with writing. You know, I went to business school and I wrote the student comedy show and I loved it. It was one of my most fun experiences. And I joke, I'm one of the few people who goes to business school and it's like, comedy writing is pretty fun. Not something I really decided to go pursue, but I hope I'd be doing something like that. Do you have a favorite phrase or maybe a quote or motivational something? Motivational something. It's a great question. This is so funny. <laughs> I have kids and young kids and girls. So we are deep, deep into Frozen. And when I did my team kickoff, we did a kickoff back when you could do in-person kickoffs back in February. And there's a song in Frozen 2 that's the next right thing. And it's about like, you may feel hopeless. You may not have any idea what to do next. But if you do just the next right thing and just kind of keep doing the next right thing, that you'll get back on the track that you want to be on. And I talked about that in my kickoff. And it's a little cliche. It's a song that you know Kristen Bell sings as the character of Anna. But I do think thinking so much about this weird world we're in, stuck at home with so much uncertainty, so much fear, like doing the next right thing has sort of kept me going and kept me motivated. I feel like my quick answers aren't that quick, by the way. <laughs> but they're great. I, it's, it's all good. Do you have a piece of advice for someone who's trying to, a CMO is trying to figure out demand gen for the first time? Oh, 
Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, hire somebody really good at it and ask a lot of questions. And I will say one of my favorite things I've done since becoming CMO that I think has helped me a lot is the world of CMOs I have found are so eager to help each other. So I would say talk to other CMOs, pick their brains, get advice on how to build that function and how to start it from scratch. If you're starting it from scratch at your company, like take advantage of that network because there's tons of CMOs out there and they're all so willing to help I've found. And then I think, think about what is the problem you're really trying to solve? Are you trying to go after a new audience? You know, is it leads? Is it the whole customer life cycle? Is it mainly digital? Are you going at the very, very high end? You need to figure out the type of demand gen engine you need to build because it's not one size fits all. And that'll help you figure out sort of the type of background and talent you're going to recruit for. You know, think about your audience, think about your objectives, be really clear how you're going to measure it. And don't neglect the tools because, you know, Right now, I think every CMO is finding themselves as a little bit of an amateur CIO as well, or certainly spending more time with a CIO than we ever did before. So you can bring in all the talent in the world, but if you don't have the right tools under it, and you can get help on that. But understanding how what you're trying to build is going to dictate the kind of systems you need is also really important. Julie, this has been absolutely awesome. Thanks a lot for your time. Do you have any final thoughts? Any uh, Anything to plug here? Oh my goodness. No. I mean, if you are one of the people who hasn't used Slack yet, please come check us out at slack.com. And we're doing our event virtually Frontiers, October 7th through 9th. We'll have a ton of great content, some really exciting speakers. So hopefully you'll be able to join us during your living room. I hope it's an engaging experience that lifts your spirits. Absolutely. And we'll link both those up in the show notes so uh, folks can just click right in. It's been awesome. Awesome. Thanks again. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Ian. Nice to meet you guys. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.